uh, delighted to be speaking from Oxford. I live uh, in Canada, teach at the University of Toronto, had a visiting fellowship here from January, but it was unclear until uh, well into February whether I would be able to come to Oxford and I'm going to start off if I may just uh, use this, this session for a personal remark. I'm feeling guilty now because I see my friend Pavlos Eleftheriadis there and I had neglected to tell him that I'm actually uh, in Oxford. Hi Pavlos, I will remedy this if uh, you're here as well. So Natasha kindly listed uh, a lot of things about me, but the one thing that uh, wasn't on that list and can't be on that list, which I want to emphasize at the beginning of my talk, is uh, that I'm not an international lawyer. She made no claim about my international law credentials, uh, and uh, she could not make any claim because uh, there are none, other than the fact that I took international law as an LLB student uh, many years ago in South Africa. And it was, in fact, my favorite uh, law course. It was taught by uh, my main mentor at that time, an international lawyer called uh, John Dugard. He also taught uh, jurisprudence, and I decided to continue on the jurisprudence track rather than the international law track. Uh, Natasha mentioned that uh, I've just published published, I've just uh, put into the production process for publication a book, The Long Arc of Legality. And one chapter of that book uh, does deal extensively with the debate I'm going to be talking to you about uh, today. And this comes about because uh, around six years ago, I was invited to give a series of seminars in Mexico City. And uh, the focus was supposed to be international law and what I did was I crammed together a bunch of my work in progress and uh, pretended that it was about uh, international law. And I've tried to make this uh, less of a pretense over uh, the past uh, few years, but uh, how much of a pretense it is, uh, you'll soon uh, find out. So what I'm going to do today is to set out some of the basic themes which I've been grappling with as I try to make sense for my own project of uh, uh, public international law. And uh, as you listen to me, this requires that you uh, follow me on a tour of what uh, James Crawford, of whom you all have heard, calls uh, the glacial uplands of juristic abstraction. And Crawford doesn't mean uh, this uh, glacial uplands of juristic abstraction as a compliment. He's talking about the monism dualism uh, debate in international law and Hart's and Hans Kelsen's uh, take on that debate. And uh, this is the debate that I engage in when I try to deal with uh, international law. If you want a, a theoretical talk that's by a real international lawyer, you'll have to wait until uh, next week when my colleague uh, Jutta Brunet will be talking to you at quite an early hour in Toronto. Now, it's sometimes said, I think, that uh, philosophers of law tend to worry when they look at public international law about what uh, Ronald Dworkin in his uh, posthumously published piece on international law called the existential question. And that of course is whether international law is really law. And whereas philosophers of law might worry about that, it's also said that uh, international lawyers don't bother with this existential question, rather they get on with the job of uh, 
trying to work out whatever part of uh, international law uh, really interests them. But I do think that it's difficult to make this existential question uh, go away because I, th I think it is incumbent on all international lawyers to try to understand uh, the juridical quality of public international law. And sometimes issues about that juridical quality does crop up in quite uh, important practical debates. So I just want to refer briefly at this point in my presentation to a debate that uh, took place in this country just a few months ago, when the question arose whether uh, the UK government would be breaking international law when it uh, wanted a bill enacted or purported to want a bill enacted, which would have given authority to uh, ministers uh, to issue regulations which would contravene uh, the agreement signed between the UK and uh, the uh, other states in the European community. And uh, the debate about this issue, whether the UK would be breaking international law if it went ahead with this uh, legislation, uh, this debate did have uh, an Oxford uh, manifestation. So Richard Eakins at this university uh, argued with uh, an international lawyer that uh, the UK would not be breaking international law if it went ahead with this uh, piece of legislation. And uh, he cited in uh, the piece where he made this argument, a claim made by a very eminent uh, philosopher of law uh, in Oxford, uh, John Finnis, uh, that uh, international law is, quote, uh, defective law. And this was part of the argument about why there wouldn't be any uh, violation of uh, the rule of law if uh, the government went ahead with the legislation. There was, in my view, a very effective uh, answer to uh, Eakins's piece by another Oxford uh, lawyer, that is uh, Professor Dapo Akandi, where uh, Akandi argued together with someone else that uh, there would be a violation of the rule of law if this legislation uh, went ahead. Now, in uh, this debate, I do think that it's a case that HLA Hart uh, would have sided with uh, Eakins and Finnis, not because he would have been in political agreement with them, but because he would have found uh, their position uh, the juridically uh, correct one. Uh, that is, in Hart's view, and I'll say a little bit more about this uh, later, international law is law, but it is uh, somewhat uh, defective. Moreover, uh, there's no legal obligation on municipal or domestic institutions to respect unincorporated public international law norms. In other words, uh, Hart was a uh, dualist. And so from his perspective, a validly made municipal norm is unproblematic from the rule of law perspective, even if it is in conflict with public international law. So I think that uh, Hart's position does support the kinds of arguments that uh, Eakins and uh, his co-author were making. And in contrast, I think that uh, Kelson's uh, legal theory supports the arguments made by Akandi. And uh, this is because I think that uh, the best understanding of Kelson's position is and this is a term I'll explain just a little bit later in my presentation. The best understanding is that Kelson is what I call an international law monist. So at this point in my presentation, I just uh, want to 
say something about uh, Kelson and his position, and then I'm going to uh, move to Hart. Uh, when it comes to uh, Kelson's understanding of uh, international law and uh, the relationship of international law with the uh, law of uh, national legal orders, I follow Kelson in all respects uh, save two, but even there I think that uh, there's a basis in Kelson's work for making the claims that I want to make uh, when it comes to the two respects in which I don't follow him. So what I'm going to do now is just uh, throw a list at you of uh, the Kelson's main claims that I think uh, bear on this monism dualism debate. Claim number one is that dualism is uh, not a coherent account of the juridical relationship between public international law and national law. And the only coherent account is an account which is uh, monistic. So that's claim number one. Claim number two, is that there uh, cannot be uh, conflicts between two norms of uh, valid uh, legal order or two norms of two valid legal orders or a plurality of such orders. So we can think of this as a kind of no conflicts uh, thesis. So on, on this argument, there cannot be a conflict between a norm of the international legal order and a norm of uh, the national, of a national legal order. So that's uh, claim number two. Claim number three is that there's a dynamic relationship between the norms of a legal order, not a static one. That is that when the relationship between a norm of a legal order and a higher order norm is not one of derivation. That is one doesn't derive uh, lower order norms from higher order norms. Uh, rather lower order norms are produced. They are produced uh, in a process which is uh, law governed, but nevertheless, this isn't uh, a matter of logically deducing the content of the norm from a higher order norm. There's something uh, creative about it. Right, so that's uh, claim number three. Only two to go. Uh, it is rather a lot, I know. As you'll, uh, I think, all know, Kelson supposed that at uh, the base of every legal order is what he called the Grund norm and which usually gets translated in English as the basic norm. And Kelson's view was that the basic norm has to be hypothesized in order to make sense of a legal order as a meaningful unity. But he also claimed that uh, this, the basic norm is a product of what he called juristic interpretation. So there's this curious feature of Kelson's work that the basic norm is both something that has to be presupposed in order to make sense of uh, legal order, but it is also something that's produced through agents in the legal order uh, interpreting the, the norms of the legal order. And uh, I, I think the best way to understand uh, this idea of the basic norm as both the basis of and the product of interpretation is to understand it as what uh, gets called in philosophical literature, a regulative assumption, an assumption that one makes about something uh, but uh, in one's activity, one seeks to ensure that that thing lives up to the assumption. So this ties into the uh, dynamic idea that I mentioned in uh, the claim number four. Now, the, the very last claim that I'm going to, that I have on my list, is that uh, the hypothesis or postulate of unity 
that is that the norms of an order can be uh, understood as a meaningful whole, is also a postulate of peace, as Kelsen puts it. And uh, one gets this idea in his uh, many works on uh, international law. So that, that those five claims, I think, are all claims that are uncontroversially part of Kelsen's legal theory. Where I depart from him is in two respects. The first respect is that, that in much of his work, Kelsen uh, said that there are two kinds of monism. So recall that uh, Kelsen supposes that one has to be a monist if one's going to understand the juridical relationship between public international law and national law. But he says that also that there are two kinds of monism. There's a kind of monism which I gestured at at the beginning of my presentation, that's international law monism, which an international law monism says that the basic norm of all legal orders is the basic norm of international law. And then there's national law monism, which is different from international law monism, because national law monism says that international law is law, as is the law of all other legal orders, but it's the basic norm of this particular national legal order that is the basis of validity of uh, the norms of all other legal orders, including the norms of international law. So that's the difference between international law monism on the one hand and national law monism on the other. And Kelsen uh, always indicated his preference for international law monism, but he said that he had that preference for political reasons. As someone who was inclined towards cosmopolitanism, uh, he was inclined politically to accepting international law monism, whereas uh, those of a more uh, nationalistic uh, inclination, uh, would he suggested uh, have preferred national law monism, but he emphasized throughout much of his work that uh, legal theory itself could not decide between uh, international law monism and national law monism. This was a matter of political inclination. Now, I think that uh, Kelsen was wrong to make this claim because it seems to me that uh, Kelsen could have said that only uh, international law monism uh, is a coherent position. There's something incoherent about uh, national law monism. And I also want to make uh, the claim that uh, Kelsen uh, should not have said, as he said throughout his work, that law can have any content, because I think it's a case that for Kelsen, and I think one can see this more clearly in his work on international law than anywhere else, that he does not think that law can have any content. Rather, when it comes to international law, at least, the content uh, of international law norms will be a content which uh, does not uh, contradict uh, the postulate of peace. That is, one would expect that in international law, law norms, the kinds of substantive norms that one will find will be uh, norms that are conducive to uh, upholding a peaceful interaction between uh, the states that are subject to international law. I also want to make the claim in uh, the next while that uh, Hart turns out uh, not to be a dualist, but what I called a moment ago, uh, a national law monist. And that dualism is not a theoretical position, rather it is at most a practical arrangement that some states have 
for managing their relationship with part of public international law. So there's no such thing as theoretical dualism. There's only uh, practical arrangements which are dualistic uh, to some extent. So there we have uh, the two respects in which I want to part from Kelsen. I want to say that only international law monism is uh, a coherent theory. And also that uh, there is uh, something to the claim that, uh, that uh, the law, especially when it comes to international law, has to have a particular content. It can't have any content whatsoever. I just want to mention briefly that there is, as I suggested, some basis in Kelsen himself for uh, these two uh, departures from his theory. So if one looks to Kelsen's first major work on international law, his 1920 book on uh, sovereignty, there he seems adamant that only what I've called international law monism is a coherent juridical explanation of the relationship of public international law uh, to national law. And it's also quite clear from uh, this book that uh, Kelsen had a rather uh, surprisingly natural law understanding of uh, international law. And I'm just going to read you a rather long uh, paragraph uh, from this book. I could have put it up, up on a PowerPoint, but I have difficulty handling PowerPoint and Zoom at the same time. So I'm afraid you're just going to have to uh, deal with my uh, reading of this uh, paragraph from Kelsen. Kelsen says in his 1920 book, there is a generally accepted understanding of the nature and concept of international law that it constitutes a community of states with equal rights. The proposition of the coexistence of a multiplicity of communities, which despite their actual difference in size, population, and effective means of exercising power are from the perspective of legality of equal value and when it comes to their mutually delimited spheres of power bound in a higher community is an eminently ethical idea and one of the few really valuable and uncontested components of contemporary cultural consciousness. But this proposition is only possible with the help of a juristic hypothesis that above the communities understood as states stands a legal order which mutually delimits the spheres of validity of the individual states in that it hinders incursions by one into the sphere of the other, or at least subjects them all to equal conditions for such incursions. And he then goes on to say that when the primacy of international law fulfills this function, that is uh, the mutual delimitation of spheres, the concept of law is simultaneously perfected in a formal and substantive sense. The law attains the organization of humanity and thereby a unity with the highest ethical idea. So if you can take at least large chunks of that in and have this image of uh, Kelsen as this austere legal theorist who put forward uh, a pure theory of law, that is a theory of law that uh, in, uh, uh, at least in one respect was purified of all ethical content, then this long quotation I've read to you is somewhat at odds with uh, that orthodox uh, view of Kelsen. The very last point I want to uh, make about Kelsen, and I hope uh, you can see this from uh, the variety of claims that I attributed to him, is that uh, when it came to constructing his legal theory, Kelsen thought one was proceeding in the wrong way 
if what one did first was to construct a theory of state law or of municipal law, and then to ask how that theory applied to public international law. Because for Kelsen, one could not understand the legal order of what we can think of as a modern legal state, unless one understood that legal order as it's situated within the international legal order. So one could not understand, one could not, on Kelsen's view, as I understand Kelsen, construct a theory of law, which did not include an account of the juridical relationship between public international law and national law. And for those of you who are familiar with HLA Hart, you'll know that Hart proceeded in exactly the opposite direction. Hart starts off uh, his uh, famous book, The Concept of Law, by saying that uh, uh, international law is not an important part of uh, jurisprudence. And he follows through on this by relegating his discussion of international law to the very last chapter of uh, the concept of law, where it seems a bit of an afterthought to everything that had gone before, because what comes before is Hart's uh, development of a theory of, uh, the, of, of a municipal legal order, that is of the internal legal order of a modern legal state. And he then asks the, only then asks the question, well, how does everything I've said before in chapters one to seven of uh, the concept of law apply to uh, public international law, the subject of uh, chapter uh, 10. And uh, what's more, when he gets to chapter 10, Hart finds, as I suggested at the beginning of my presentation, international law somewhat uh, defective. He doesn't, as his uh, predecessor in the 19th century, uh, John Austin, in his command theory of law, uh, disqualify public international law as law. As I'm sure uh, you all know, uh, Austin regarded public international law as no more than a set of uh, positive moral conventions, just as he regarded, uh, it might be important to note, uh, domestic uh, constitutional law that was also no more than positive uh, morality, according to Austin. And Hart wants to move away from uh, these uh, views and uh, to find, because he takes us to be a fact of the matter, that, uh, that international law is law. But it isn't law in the terms that he had developed earlier in the concept of law for understanding uh, the distinctive structure of uh, municipal law, because there, as you'll know, he thinks that the most fundamental uh, idea in understanding the law of a modern legal state is the rule of recognition, that is the secondary rule that certifies uh, whether all other rules of the legal order, including uh, the other secondary rules, are valid rules. And uh, he does not find a rule of recognition in international law. That leaves him with the problem of understanding why international law is law properly so called. And as I'm sure you are all familiar with, his claim is that uh, international law is much like the law of what he calls, maybe one needs inverted commas uh, for Zoom, but the law of a primitive uh, society. That is a, a society in which the only law is uh, customary uh, law. If it's right that uh, international law is uh, 
is customary law in the way that the law of a primitive society is customary law, then we have to ask, and it's, it's not a question that Hart really answers, uh, and uh, what, what makes it law? The kind of law like the law that we find in a primitive society. And I think the answer has to be for Hart, which you might think is obvious, which, uh, and that's why he doesn't make this answer explicit, that uh, it's a rule of recognition of a particular society that says that uh, the, the customary law uh, that we find in international law is law properly so-called, just as a rule of recognition might say that uh, customary law within uh, the national legal order is to be considered as law properly so-called. But if that's right, if uh, international law is law because there's some set of norms which uh, the rule of recognition of one's legal order uh, says uh, should count as uh, valid uh, legal norms, then it's uh, the case that uh, the recognition of uh, international law by a particular legal order is entirely contingent. Just as uh, a, a national legal order does not have to recognize customary law as law, uh, and uh, the rule of recognition of a legal order does not have to recognize international law as law. If Hart had uh, said that, uh, I think uh, he would have uh, provided a, a, a rather strange but still a coherent account of uh, international law. But he did not say that. And he did not say that because I think there's an implicit assumption in uh, Hart's theory of international law that uh, at least in all, and Hart did use this language, all civilized states it will be the case that the rule of recognition of that state will recognize uh, international law as uh, law. But if that's right, if it's the rule of recognition of every uh, uh, civilized, to use this term state, recognizes international law as law, then we have a rather strange uh, situation because it would then be the case that uh, the law of every other legal order, other than one's own legal order, including the international law, counts as law only because one's rule of recognition says that it's so. And then Hart would turn out to be what uh, Kelsen calls, using my term, a, uh, a national law monist. He, he assumes that the ultimate rule of uh, one's own legal order uh, is the ultimate rule of every other legal order. And, and this is a rather strange view because we're gonna find that from the internal point of view of jurists in every other legal order, they have exactly the same account of uh, the validity of law of uh, all other legal orders. And what one would have is a, uh, is a, a view which has the same content as international law monism, but uh, because it, but rooted in a, uh, a very uh, strange set of ideas about how legal orders interact with each other. I want to add to uh, this uh, claim about uh, the strangeness of Hart's theory of public international law, uh, something about uh, Hart's uh, dualism. So it's, 
the thought so far is that uh, Hart does not really turn out to be a dualist, but a national law uh, monist. But he did officially espouse uh, dualism and he espoused it in a rather interesting way. So Hart's explicit commitment to dualism crops up in uh, a lengthy footnote in the concept of law. And it's in a chapter which is called The Foundations of a Legal System, which follows the chapter in which he sets out his famous account of uh, the rule of recognition. And his uh, commitment to dualism is set out in a discussion about the continuity of uh, legal orders. It's a, a very influential discussion and it deals with uh, the important phenomenon that had taken place in, uh, in uh, the former British Empire where countries like uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, South Africa had achieved independence from uh, the legal order of uh, the UK. And it was a bit of a mystery about how they'd managed to achieve independence, why they were still not subject to uh, the rule of recognition of uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, Hart uh, says in this footnote, Kelsen's account of the possible relationships between municipal law and international law assumes that the statement that a legal system exists must be a statement of law made from the point of view of one legal system about another, accepting the other system as valid and as forming a single system with itself. The common sense views, and Hart is now talking about his own view, that municipal law and international law constitute separate systems involving involves treating the statement that a legal system, national or international law exists as a statement of facts. This is for Kelsen, unacceptable pluralism. So for Hart, the common sense view, the correct view is that municipal law and international law constitute separate legal systems. So there we have uh, dualism, but it turns out not to be uh, dualism, but uh, what we can think of on my argument as rule of law, rule of uh, recognition, uh, national law, uh, monism, a rather clumsy uh, expression, but uh, there it is. So what should we make of uh, Hart's uh, dualism? I think that uh, Hart's dualism and uh, his rule of recognition are really the products of his own understanding of uh, the UK legal order. That is, if uh, the rule of recognition analysis of legal order is going to have any traction, the place where it has traction best is in an order where there's parliamentary supremacy. And the idea of dualism that uh, Hart is committed to is best suited to a system of uh, parliamentary uh, supremacy. But even in a system of parliamentary supremacy, Hart's understanding of the relationship between public international law and uh, uh, national law is uh, rather uh, flawed because it assumes that uh, the norms of public international law uh, do not have any domestic effect until they've been expressly incorporated uh, by uh, parliament. But as I understand uh, dualism in uh, this country, recall that I'm a complete amateur when it comes to public international law, uh, dualism applies only to uh, uh, the norms of treaties 
that have been ratified, but not yet incorporated. It doesn't apply to customary international law. It doesn't apply to Juskogens, uh, and it doesn't apply to uh, uh, the uh, norms that are, are valid erga omnes. And uh, so Hart, uh, Hart's account of uh, the relationship between national law and international law is uh, not faithful to the law of his own uh, legal order. And so what one finds is that Hart uh, provides a picture of legal order, which is not only in some respects quite parochial in that he generalizes from his uh, own legal order to legal order in general, but it turns out to be uh, faulty when it comes even to his own uh, legal order. So what are we to make of that? Well, if we uh, go back to uh, the example with which I started my presentation, so the debate in this country about whether the UK would be breaking international law if it went ahead with legislation, which uh, delegated to ministers the authority to override a treaty which the UK had entered into uh, with other states. The argument that uh, the UK uh, would not be violating the rule of law if it went ahead with this legislation and then ministers followed through by uh, putting in place such uh, regulations, uh, that argument turns out, I think, to be uh, fatally uh, flawed and fatally flawed from uh, the perspective of uh, lawyers within uh, the United Kingdom, given the facts about uh, their own legal order. And so I do think it's the case that if uh, we want to understand why, say, uh, Eakins and Finnis's argument in this debate was uh, wrong, we, we probably have to excavate uh, the kind of legal th theory with which they were operating which I think turns out to be pretty well the uh, Hart's uh, legal positivism. In contrast, if one wants to understand uh, why uh, Professor Kande's argument was right, then I think uh, the best place to start if one's looking for a theory of why he was right is uh, with Kelson. Let me close because I think I'm now at minute 40 of my presentation, and I don't want to go past uh, 45 minutes, but by saying a little bit about uh, perhaps uh, the most controversial part of uh, Kelson's legal theory, where if one thinks back to uh, the claims that I uh, mentioned can, I think, be uncontroversially associated with Kelson, you'll recall that one of the claims is that there uh, can't be any conflicts between norms of uh, both within one valid legal order or between uh, the norms of two valid legal orders. And if one looks at Hart's essays on Kelsen, Hart thought this was just a crazy view. Why? Because there are obviously conflicts, right? So, so if the UK had gone ahead with this uh, legislation and ministers had uh, uh, issued regulations which overrode uh, the UK's treaty obligations, there would, it seems obviously, have been a conflict between uh, norms at the higher level, that is uh, 
the international level and uh, a, norm, a norm at the uh, domestic level. So how could one possibly think that one could uh, support the, the claim that there can't be any conflicts between norms? And I think that in order to understand this perhaps counterintuitive uh, view of Kelsen's, one has to uh, uh, rely on some of the other claims that are listed. His claim about uh, the, uh, the dynamic nature of legal order and uh, the claim that uh, the unity of the norms of legal order is produced by juristic interpretation. So, so where I'll close is just with a, by relying on a quick analogy with a uh, statute that I think will be familiar with to everyone in the United Kingdom, to at least to all lawyers, and that is uh, the UK uh, Human Rights Act of uh, 1998. So you'll all know, I think, and probably know better than I know, that uh, this act contains, well, contains many sections, but the two sections that I want to focus on are section three and section four. So putting things uh, colloquially, what section three says that if, is that if judges are interpreting a provision in a statute, which seems to uh, violate one of the rights commitments in uh, the statute, the judges should try as hard as they can to come to an interpretation of that provision that shows that it is consistent with the rights commitment. So even though on the face of it, it seemed inconsistent, the judges should try to come up with an interpretation that shows that it is consistent. So what we get there is, as I understand Kelson's uh, claim, judges trying to show that through uh, uh, a creative act of interpretation that uh, there is unity between the norms of their legal order so that the provision in the statute can be shown to be consistent with uh, the norm in the Human Rights Act, that is uh, the rights commitment. But let's say that the judges are uh, unable to find an interpretation of uh, the provision that shows consistency with the rights commitment. Then, as you'll know, section four of the Human Rights Act tells the judges that they must issue a declaration of incompatibility. Once that declaration of incompatibility has been uh, issued, then it's really up to the government and uh, parliament to consider whether they should try to cure uh, that incompatibility. If they don't, then the problem gets kicked up a level to uh, the European uh, Court of Human Rights. And if that court finds against uh, the UK government, that doesn't uh, require that uh, in terms of uh, there being a kind of enforceable legal obligation on uh, the UK to do something about it. But if the UK neglects to do something about it, that becomes a matter for uh, the UK to sort out with uh, the other states that are parties to the convention. So that means that the legal story as it were has not come to an end. And uh, this is uh, why I think it is not implausible to claim, as Kelsen claimed, that uh, there can be no conflicts between the norms of a valid legal order. Because even if there is a provisional conflict, what will happen uh, in, the, uh, in, in the legal universe, as it were, is that the conflict will be moved up a level 
and uh, the conflict should be resolved at uh, that level. And if one puts together this picture of uh, the interaction of the international legal order with uh, national legal orders, I think one gets uh, not only a very attractive view of how uh, legal order works in general, but also a view which, and here I go out very far on a limb, probably makes sense, and I'll find out in a moment, uh, to most international lawyers when they are thinking about how international law works. And I think I'll stop at that point. Thank you.